Acts is filled with action and drama. The acts of the Holy Spirit working through his people to perform what God has purposed and what he has willed. And the drama comes from the resistance of Satan to God's work. Paul and Barnabas had returned to their home church of Antioch and they've reported of God's work through their missionary journey. And as they come home, what could be or perhaps should be a time of rest, fellowship, and recuperation, they find themselves embattled in a conflict, a controversy from within. They've dealt with a false teacher on the island of Cyprus named Bar-Jesus, They've dealt with discouragement in Pamphylia when John Mark decided to go back home and not be faithful to the ministry. They've dealt with outside threats, not just threats to their safety, but an actual stoning of a crowd that was jeered on and organized by a group that wanted them to stop preaching the gospel. They tried to kill them. They tried to kill Paul, but God raised him and allowed him to go on to the next city and to continue on. So they've gone through these challenges, and now back in their home church in Antioch, they encounter a a challenge within the church. You know, sometimes we think this Christian walk is, is... supposed to be easy. And it, it has times when we may not be suffering directly from, we may not think we're battling Satan, you know, face to face, and it's times we have rejoicing. But it has also times and moments of difficulty. But here's the thing. God uses this difficulty to direct, to shape and to prepare us for furthering his work. This controversy, there's a big controversy in in Acts chapter 15, and we'll go through today. But this controversy helps to refine a focus on the gospel. It helps uh, um, those who teach the gospel to see how important it is to be true to the gospel, not to veer off in one, on one side or the other, and to realize there's a battle for the gospel. And it's a battle that we must be willing to join in. I want you to see how this battle progresses, and I want you to see how Paul and Barnabas and the other apostles respond to this battle, because we live in a culture where we don't like battle, We don't like confrontation. We don't like anything that makes us uncomfortable. We want smooth sailing. In fact, oftentimes our sin is is to say nothing so, so there is no drama. So things just continue on. That's not always God's purpose. I want you to notice how Paul and Barnabas interact in this. 
The warning comes to us to kind of get our attention, the first word in the chapter, but. That's a transition word telling us that things might have been smooth and easy, but something's about to happen. Some men came down from Judea. And you would think, okay, opposition is going to come from the nasties, right? Opposition comes from people who, who look like they, they want to tear your head off, you know? Uh, that, but that's not always the case. Sometimes opposition comes from your own home. In this case, it says some men from Judea. And, 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 and what were they doing? They were teaching the brothers. In other words, they had some positions in the church. They were recognized by others. Otherwise, this would not be a controversy at all. We just say, look, you know, you know those guys over there. Don't listen to them. But it wasn't that kind of thing. These people were in the church, and from within the church, they were promoting something, and, and they would not let it go. It says, they were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, we would think that, okay, that's an issue for them then, and it has nothing to do with today. But I want to tell you, this is an affront to the gospel today. That there is something you must do in order to be saved. It's something that you must hold, you must, you must obey, you must conform to that in order to be saved. This is adding something to the gospel. In this case, they said you must be circumcised. And the, the word there, according to the custom of Moses, this came from the Jewish sect. You see, People get saved from all kinds of histories and backgrounds, and God is intentionally saving people. And there some who had the baggage, the heritage, if you want to call it, uh, uh, they, they came from the Jewish heritage, and they were trying to bring that into the gospel, into Christianity. One of the things we're going to learn here is that you don't bring your baggage into the gospel and, 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 and help it in any way. We all have a history, we all have a background, uh, a foundation of where we came from, but the gospel does not bend to that. You need to bend to what the gospel... See, the gospel has changed the lives of those who believe in it, and we are not to change the gospel to go along with anything else. And so they were saying, hey, you got to be circumcised according to the custom of, of Moses unless, it, or you can't be saved. Notice the reaction, verse 2. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate. There's a key word there. They didn't ignore the battle, and they didn't agree with it. They weren't going to be silent about this. They weren't afraid to challenge this teaching and challenge directly those who taught it. It says they had no small dissension and debate. In other words, they hit this head on. And they would not let it go. 
Now, you, you'll read throughout the New Testament, and Paul, as he trained uh, young pastors like Timothy, so in First and Second Timothy and Titus, you see his, they're called pastoral epistles. And you notice oftentimes he says, be careful about quarrels and debates and arguments. So Paul is one that believes that don't get sidetracked by, by meaningless debates. Now, why do I say that? It's because here is a debate that needs to take place. This is not meaningless. This is pivotable, pivotal. This is exactly, precisely what the gospel defines, what the gospel is and what the gospel isn't. In his letter in Galatians, Paul is, is, is uh, uh, fighting and battling. He's contending for the gospel. There's a position that we have as believers to stand for the gospel. And particularly here, he's saying stand against those who call themselves believers, may in fact be believers, but are speaking a foreign gospel. They're speaking something that's in opposition to what God says the gospel is. So Barnabas and Paul challenged them. No small dissension and debate with them. It says in verse 2, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. What is, what is, what is it that they were doing? They were getting clarity in the church as to what the gospel is. I don't think Paul and Barnabas for one moment questioned what the gospel was. They knew what it was. That tells us something, how simple the gospel is and how easy it is to see when something goes against or, or strays away from the gospel. These individuals were saying that you can be saved by keeping the law. You can be saved by your obedience, your adherence to some law. Uh, and, and, and the law that they were looking at was good. It was brought by Moses. But it doesn't bring salvation. That salvation comes by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And anything that swerves off of that is a false gospel. And so they, they, they were contending with this. They were challenging this. This, what, this is one of the reasons why in church today we need to continue in teaching and discipleship. It's not enough to just teach publicly from the pulpit as I do today, but we got to individually break that down in individuals' lives. We got to be willing to challenge thinking that goes against the gospel, and we, sometimes that's one-on-one, -on -one, sometimes that's, that's, that's as a small group, uh, uh, but it, and sometimes it's in your backyard, sometimes it's in your, at your kitchen table, uh, sometimes it's at the break room at, at work. Uh, there, there are appropriate ways and means, but we, we continue to do that. So Paul and Barnabas took the charge. They didn't let this go, 
And in fact, what they were saying is, let's go to Jerusalem, where it was kind of like the headquarters. Believers had started there, and they were going to the apostles and the elders there to get that matter straight. In other words, they were saying, hey, let's go right to, 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 to the individual so that nobody can corrupt this. Make sure they have a clear understanding, and we go out from there. Uh, you'll notice in the letter that they end up writing uh, uh, from Jerusalem, sent with Paul and Barnabas to, back to the church at Antioch. They said, hey, some people have been going out like they're from us and like they represent us. We're telling you we didn't send them. That's not what we agree with in terms of what the gospel says. So they went to Jerusalem to talk about this matter. Look at verse 6. Oh, let's slow, slow down, back up a little. Verse 4. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. It tells you something about Paul and Barnabas. They were not welcome. If you remember when Paul first got saved, folks were scared of him. And he had to go have a private meeting with Peter and, and, and some of the other leaders. But now they know his testimony. They see what, he done, what he's done. And they welcome him into Jerusalem, into the church there. They declared all that God had done with them. That's part of why they could welcome him. They could see what God had done in his life. See his testimony. Verse 5. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said it's necessary to circumcise them and to, in order, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now, notice what they said. It's not just some men, like you see in verse 1. It says some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. Well, unless you know, there's people who were Pharisees who were, who were hearing the gospel and coming to Christ. That's a good thing, isn't it? That, that, that's good. In other words, we don't just go and preach to certain kinds of people. We go and we preach. And God is going to take you from that background that you had. He's going to take me from the background I had, and he's going to set me on the gospel and correct me, line me up in the right way. So he took these folks. The problem with it is they didn't want to let go of where they came from. They, they used to belong to the party of the Pharisees. They want to hold on to the party of Pharisees and now sit in the seat with the gospel. And it doesn't work. You see, when you come to Christ, you got to let everything else go. You got to be willing to let everything else go. That's what it means to trust in Christ and Christ alone. They wanted to hold on to old beliefs and yet embrace the gospel. Why would they want to embrace the gospel? Well, that's easy to answer. Look what the gospel provides. It provides forgiveness of sin. It provides eternal life. Who wouldn't want that? But the problem is they wanted to keep on holding to their old beliefs. You notice in Jesus' ministry, his strongest criticisms came to the group called the Pharisees. And notice how he criticized them. He criticized them indirectly by telling his followers, y'all got to do better than them. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, you will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. Those folks are like, whoa. 
That was like a death sentence. What do you mean? It, in, in their eyes, there was nobody more righteous than the Pharisees. So unless your righteousness exceeds their righteousness, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. That was a shocking statement by Jesus. He was telling them, just like he said to the rich man, it's impossible to get into heaven based on your own standard, for you to be good enough to get into heaven. Who is he telling that to? To the people who were seen as the most righteous of all in, 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 a, in a culture. That's a huge statement. He's also telling to his group of followers, you've got no chance. If you can't even compete with the Pharisees for righteousness, you got no chance of getting into heaven. He's setting the stage. What does he mean by that? None of us have any chance by our own efforts or our own standing to get into heaven. And so these groups uh, who came from the Pharisees should have let go of their Pharisee, Pharisee beliefs and should have latched on to Jesus. But instead, they want to hold both. They want to buddy up to Jesus and embrace faith in him and, and, and forgiveness of sins. But they want to hold on to we have some righteousness of our own. We puff ourselves up. We steal some of that. We ain't all that anymore, but we steal some of that. Jesus says, no, 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 no. The gospel says, no, no. And so these believers, it says, who belong to the party of the Pharisees, they are the ones saying this, hey, you can't just have people coming in and being saved just by trusting Christ. They got to keep the law of Moses. Do you notice the confusion here? They're thinking, you know, well, you can't just let people come in and be saved. They, they're going to act any kind of way. They, we got to have a standard. They got to keep the law of Moses. They got to obey the Ten Commandments. Notice the response to that. When, when they challenge that, I want to get to the end and then work back from there. Verse 10 why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? The response to these believers who also call themselves Pharisees is, why are you putting a yoke on the back of people who come to faith in Christ? By giving them a burden that they could never bear. What is that burden? That burden is perfection. That burden is keeping the law. He's saying, in our history, from creation until now and forever, no one has been able to keep the law. Why are you trying to make that the standard when nobody has ever met it? I want you to notice a couple things in verse 10, the word yoke. A yoke was a linking together of two animals that were plowing so that they would plow together. But what it became is simply a burden. A burden. And that's expressed in verse uh, 28. Can you, can you look, look with me at verse 28? It says, this is their answer um, to believers. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay unto you no greater burden. 
We're not going to burden you to keep the law because you never could keep the law. So he's saying, why are you putting this burden on? And so the confusion was that we got to have some requirement. Otherwise, people are just going to be saved and, and live their own life. Well, the confusion is, it's the Holy Spirit. When a person is saved by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit transforms them and builds them into his, into the image of Christ so that daily they, they put off the old self and daily they put on the new man, which is renewed by the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so there is a standard. It's a holy standard, but it's not obtained by, by our righteousness or by our attempts to do right. So he says, why are you burdening these people with this? He points out several things that this is the gospel, that faith in Christ alone is a person is saved by trusting in Christ and trusting in Christ alone. And that this is shown by God's will has been expressed in his word and by God's working in the, in the present right now. He makes that case. Paul and Barnabas are making that case. I want you to, to, to see that. The, the key is in verse 11. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. In other words, it's not by keeping the law, but it's by, by the grace that God gives in his son, Jesus. Jesus has paid the price for my sin, and when I trust in him, that price is, 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 is accounted for me for forgiveness and for, for, for righteousness. That's the only way I can be forgiven of my sin. We believe we'll be saved that way, and so will they. And so Barnabas and Paul begin to rehearse with them what God has done. Peter speaks up in verse 7. It says, after much debate, Peter stood up and said, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. You remember Peter in Acts chapter 10 and chapter 11, he encountered that, that, that Gentile named Cornelius and God had given Peter a vision while he was praying that he should go with the messenger sent by Cornelius and walk into this Gentile household and preach the gospel to them. And Peter obeyed. He preached the gospel. What happened? The whole household was saved. Not only were they saved, but the Holy Spirit, they began to, to, to speak in languages that the Holy Spirit ascended on them, just like he did believers in Acts chapter 2. And so Peter says, look, God told me, I thought it was strange when he told me, but he told me to go and do this. And, and I preached, and by my mouth the gospel was, was preached, and I saw the Gentiles believe, is what he's saying. And he says, Verse 8, and God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He says, look at what God did. When, when the gospel was preached, when he commanded me to preach the gospel to, to the Gentiles, I did that. And look at the response. God calls them to have the Holy Spirit just like he did for us. 
Then verse 9, and made no distinction between us and them. You ought to kind of like circle that in your Bible. Made no distinction between us and them. This is a Jewish apostle saying God made no distinction between the Jew and the Gentile when it came to salvation. That's an amazing message. That's what Peter says. Made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. That's a powerful statement. And then he asked the question, now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? By placing, you know, in other words, you're saying, God, you were wrong by saving those Gentiles the same way you saved us. And you should have required them to keep the law. See, that's that wrong thinking. They thought they were required to keep the law. And Jesus, Jesus just exploded that whole argument every moment that he got, showing that in no way could they keep the law. They needed someone else to keep the law for them and be their righteousness. That's exactly who Jesus was. Verse 12, just like right here, all the assembly fell silent. <laughs> they considered what Peter has said, they considered what Paul and Barnabas had been saying, and they began to see, probably in a new way, the work of God. Now, James comes, and he puts this in perspective. Verse 13, after they finished speaking, James replied. But before we get to that, look what Paul and Barnabas said. They listened, in verse 12, to Paul and to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. God followed up what had happened with his great miracles through their hands to the Gentiles. Verse 13, after they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. So he links Peter's experience to the Old Testament prophets. Look what he says. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. As they were debating this whole topic, what were they doing? They were looking at what God had done, looked at what God was doing. They looked at what God had said in his word. They compared. They were going to settle this debate by what God said and what God did, not what man felt or what they thought was right or what they thought was fair. What God said and what God did would settle this matter. That's exactly what they did. It said, what's been spoken to you before by Paul and Barnabas and now Peter is in complete agreement with the word of God from Old Testament. The prophets agree. He makes a quote from Amos chapter 9, verse 10 and through 12. And you can see the power of this quote. Verse 16, after this I will return. I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it. In other words, he says he's going to do a work in Israel, right? But for what purpose? Verse 12. Excuse me, verse 17, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord 
and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. Not just the Jews, the remnant of mankind, but all the Gentiles. This has been God's purpose throughout all of eternity. That he would save a people of his own and that people would be Jew and Gentile both. All the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. He's saying, don't you see God's stamp of approval on all of this? This is God's work. It's in complete harmony and agreement with God's word. It's consistent. What's gone wrong is our understanding of God's word, not his word. His word has been plain and simple from the beginning. It's the understanding. It's man's thought and intuition that, 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 uh, that uh, 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 um, perverts the gospel and twists it. God's speaking, his word has been clear, and now they're able to see this. Verse 19, therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble these. Look at the word trouble. If you circle that word trouble with the, with the word in verse 12 with a yoke, and with the word in verse 28, a burden, we can see how it is to try to get men to do right, but they don't have the Holy Spirit working in their lives. Verse 22, uh, verse 19, is my judgment. We should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled and from blood. Here's what they're saying. Don't put a burden of the law back on the Gentiles, the same law the Jews could never keep. But exhort them to turn from idolatrous practices and immorality. These dishonoring, dishonoring practices that the law speaks of and helps people see. Nothing wrong with the law. It defined sin in some clear ways. It says, don't put the law or the burden of the law on the Gentiles. But teach them to turn away from the wickedness and the sin that the law points to and to turn to God. And so they wrote a letter. Let's look at the letter. First of all, it says in verse 22, it seemed good to them that they would choose some men to go along with Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch. So they sent Judas and Silas. And they sent a letter with them. And here's the letter in verse 23. Brothers, excuse me, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Now, some have said this is a letter of authority and that the, the church in, in, in Jerusalem was, had jurisdiction over 
Uh, but that's not what we see here. What we see is they are simply clarifying the gospel. The gospel first came to them in Jerusalem. God had set up apostles, and they were to take God's word and speak it. And now a problem came up. They simply helped in the clarification of it, and they're communicating that clarification to those who have been troubled in Antioch. They don't themselves set what is right and what is wrong. They simply look into God for what is right. And as they see that, as God made that plain, they begin to communicate that to others. They, much like I would do in a pulpit here, I don't make up the truth of God's word. I, I, I don't tell you by my wisdom what's right and what's wrong. I simply explain God's truth. Declare what God has said. Make it simple and make it plain. It's not my word. It's God's word. That's what they were doing in Jerusalem, making simple the truth of God in, in, in light of the new controversy or so-called controversy that came up. They clarified the teaching of the word of God. Nothing new was brought forward. No, nothing novel. All this is, can, can, can be taken from the Old Testament, from Jesus himself, and what God was doing in that day. They simply clarified what God has said and what God was doing and what his purpose was. Remember Jesus, remember the, the, the whole model in Acts? Jesus says, you're going to be witnesses to me, not just in Jerusalem, not just in Judea, but Samaria. They would have been thinking, Samaria, we don't even go there. Not just Samaria, but to the uttermost part of the world. Where are you go, who are you going to find in the uttermost part of the world? Jews? No, not just Jews. You're going to find Gentiles. It was his purpose all along that he would reach his people from people groups all over the world. What's happening is you just have an eye-opening moment. God is using this controversy to make clear what his word has already said. That's what I love about how God works. He'll use a, a, a controversy, a challenge in the church to help us see more clearly his word and his direction. And that's what he's doing here. That's what he's doing here. So they're going to send Paul and Barnabas with a, a couple other men back to Antioch to, to clarify. And notice what they clarify when they send them. Um, send them this letter. The brothers, both apostles and elders, to the brothers who are, in, in, who are of the Gentiles. He says, this is coming from us, not fake people who act like they were us. Not false teachers who act like they have some authority as apostles. This is coming from the real apostles. And what do we do? You know who people who, who have real authority rarely uh, have to like uh, uh, um, brandish the sword and make threats? They simply saying, look, God has made plain to us and we're making plain to you. We're not coming up with anything new. So he says... To the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and trouble you with words, unsettling your mind, although we gave them no instructions. And making it clear, the folks who came with this wrong teaching, they didn't get it from us. They didn't get it as a word from us. Now, they may be talking like they had authority as from us and we in agreement with them. But they didn't. 
and we're not in agreement with them. In fact, we're not afraid to challenge and to call them what they are. For one, at least you could say they're ignorant. They don't understand the gospel. That's not necessarily a derogatory term unless you're ignorant and won't learn. To not know something is simply how we grow. But these were ignorant and, and, and they, were, they weren't willing to learn and to listen and to see what God was actually saying. They thought they knew what they were talking about. They said, these men aren't from us. They didn't get our approval. We don't agree with what they've come up with. And we're making it plain by this letter. Verse 25, it has seemed good to us having come to one accord to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. In other words, it's saying we agree with Barnabas and Paul and we're sending these men to show you that we agree with them. In other words, they're saying if we agree with Barnabas and Paul, we totally disagree with who Paul and Barnabas have been, been, been debating with. I love that. I love the clarity of that. Too many times people try to, try to act like they have to walk on eggshells and have both sides of an issue. If the gospel is clear on an issue, then speak clearly on it. In fact, you're wrong if you won't speak clearly on what the gospel speaks clearly about. They make a clear statement. It says, it seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Our beloved Barnabas and Paul, they endorse these men. Verse 26, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, whether that, re whether that refers to Barnabas and Paul or, or whether it refers, refers to, to the men they're sending as Judas and, and, and Silas, it, it probably refers to both of them, both of those groups of men. They're saying these are good, godly men who, who we trust, who you can trust. Men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by the word of mouth. What are they saying? When Judas and Silas get to you, you're going to see that they, they, they line up with exactly what Paul and Barnabas has been talking about. And they line up with, with us here in Jerusalem, what we've been saying. With Peter, with James. You see the agreement there? The unity there. The unity is, is in the gospel. You got some people who aren't unified on this, and that's why there was a debate. But the unity is those who lined up with the gospel. It's not a political thing. Verse 28, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. And they repeat those same requirements. Notice what he says after that. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. I like what he says. He says, look, focus on what the gospel is and what it's about is faith in Christ and Christ alone. 
He says, if you, if, you, if you refrain from these other things that we warned you about, you'll do well. In other words, not that you'll be saved by refraining from those things. It's trusting in Christ that brings that salvation. But you'll do well. This contention is dealt with boldly, straight up front, and then it's communicated to those who needed to hear it. And notice the response when they hear it. Notice, look how encouraged they are when the gospel is clarified in their lives. Verse 30, so when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. They got the whole church together, and they said, we want to tell you the, the results of our debates and us going down to, to, to Jerusalem uh, um, and, and speaking with the apostles and the elders there, and they have gotten together about this thing, and they wrote a letter. We want you to hear it. Verse 31, when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. <laughs> Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. In other words, they preached. They preached the word of God. They encouraged them. And in preaching the word of God, they strengthened them. In clarifying the truth of the word of God regarding this issue, many of the brothers were encouraged and strengthened. It's, it's the truth that comes from God's word. It's the clarity that comes from God's word that gives us direction, that gives us encouragement, that gives us support, that gives us the motivation that, that we're on the right track and that we should continue that way. Verse 33, after they had spent some time, in other words, it was a good time, and, and, and they, didn't do, they didn't cut it short, but they spent some time. They were sent off in peace by the brothers. Now, who is this is sent off? It is, it is a, um, it's Silas and Judas, the, one, the messengers that came from Jerusalem. In other words, they came from Jerusalem, went to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, and they, they gave this letter and responded to the people, and the people were happy and sent them back in peace. It's like, ah, oh, thanks. Y'all can go back. Let, them, let the folks know we heard what you said. Thank you so much. We're in one accord with you. Thank you for, for clarifying these things. And they, they went back to Jerusalem, sent back. In peace. Now think about that. Remember how Paul and Barnabas were when they were when they were in their missionary journey. They would go to one city, and instead of being sent from there in peace, they'd be chased out of there with the threat of death, right? And they would go on to the next city and just keep on preaching and going to the next city. Here is the welcome of believers to believers of the gospel to those who totally endorse the gospel. In other words, you know what? If, if I believe and speak and live the gospel, I'm going to get along with you as you believe and speak and live the gospel. Even if we got to clarify some things according to the gospel as we go, we're going to get along. The discord comes when one of those parties falls off of the gospel, falls off seeing it and living it. That's when we get the discord. 
We're going to talk about some other discord at the end of this chapter. I don't have time to get into today, so we'll hold that for next week. The discord between Paul and Mark. Actually, the discord between Paul and Barnabas because of Mark. We'll get to that. I want you to see that God works even in discord, even in controversy, but the gospel is not neutral in those controversies. The gospel is essential. And they, they stood up for the gospel, and as a result, the gospel was clarified, and it became a blessing to all those who had heard the gospel. Can you imagine, we, we, we use your words in this chapter like yoke and burden and trouble. That's how it feels to have a gospel that requires me and you to keep a standard to be holy and acceptable to God. Can you imagine how discouraging, how distressing? It is a burden. It is a yoke. It is troubling to try to live that way. How freeing it is to know that the gospel is not about my power to keep myself right and straight according to man's standard, even God's standard, but it's God's power to work through me in his Holy Spirit to change me, to transform me so that I am able, first of all, because of Christ, I am changed and I'm transformed. And I've now acquired to me a righteousness that is not my own. Oh, I didn't plan this, but we got to go back to Romans chapter 3. Can, can we just look at that for a moment? Romans chapter 3. It says... Verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. He says the scene that if we're required to, to obey God perfectly and to keep the law, none of us would make it. Then verse 21 makes this point. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. In other words, he's saying there is shown to us a way that we can have righteousness apart from keeping the law. What is that? He goes on to explain it. He says this. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. You get that? The righteousness that comes to us when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. Not by our own doings. But let's keep on. It's going to clarify for itself. The right, verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It says, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness before, excuse me, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over sin. This righteousness that it talks about, um, 
Verse 27, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. That's the point I wanted to get to. One is justified by faith apart from works of the law. You and, I, you and I cannot be declared righteous by our own action. We're declared righteous or justified by our faith, not by doing the law, but in Christ. So the gospel is clarified. It's the same gospel all through God's word, Old Testament, New Testament. It doesn't change. Our understanding of it might be skewed and, and think it's different. It's the same. God doesn't change. His, his word is consistent. And it's been clarified in this controversy in Acts chapter 15. I pray that that, as it brought encouragement to the believers who heard it in Antioch, it might bring encouragement to you who walk in the gospel. It's a blessing to walk in the gospel. It is to know that, hey, if you were to die tonight... (laughs) You'll be 100% sure you go to heaven, not because your righteousness is way up here, because it's not. It's because you trust in Jesus, who has given you his righteousness. He's died for your sin and caused your sins to be forgiven completely. What sin? Past, present, and future. So that we get to heaven by faith in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your word today. I pray, Lord, as we break down in our understanding this truth, that you had this debate and this controversy for a reason, so that those who are puffed up in pride will be brought low and realize they're not getting to heaven on their goodness. Those who've been humbled by your power and your might to receive your grace will be lifted up, be encouraged because their salvation is not based on their own work. It's based on your work of Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection. So, Lord, I pray that we'd walk in that, we'd be encouraged in that. We would learn to contend for the gospel and speak to others concerning this gospel so that they too know that they can trust Christ and be saved. As Brian spoke yesterday, this truth, this gospel is not far from us. Like we've got to have somebody go all the way to heaven to get it. Someone has already done that for us. It's close to us, made close by what Jesus Christ has done, what he has accomplished that we could never accomplish. Thank you for that, Lord. Help us to to rejoice in that. Embrace that. Hold on to that, that gospel, that work that Jesus has done as it being sufficient for our salvation. Speak to hearts today, Lord. Quiet our fears. That comes when we stray from the gospel and cause us to settle in and be encouraged in the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.